Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Good morning. Welcome to church band. Hey, great job on that song. My my watch was alerting me that my uh, heart rate was up to like 160. So <laughs> success. Hey, I hope everybody had a great uh, Sailor weekend last weekend, a great Thanksgiving. Did anybody eat any good food? What was shout out? What did, what did you eat? What was the best thing you ate? Venison? Yeah. Pie. All right, pie. That was the best thing. We had a wild game dinner at our house, and we had venison and duck. And then the week before, like leading up to it, my dear brother-in-law fried deer testicles uh, for the whole family. So uh, if you're new here, welcome. If you decide to leave, we completely understand. The door's right there. We won't hold it against you. No, it was, it was delicious. It was, it was actually really, really good. So welcome back to church. We're, we're glad you're here with us this morning. Um, we are in Revelation, and uh, we're at Revelation 20. We're getting close to the end here. Um, as I like to start out most of my messages, because I, I, I feel that it's a good way to start out, I needed to confess something to you. I feel like that's a good way to start any message. And so my confession is, is that when... Revelation was suggested as a series. Um, I was like, yes, this, this will be good. And then it was suggested that we do six months of Revelation. And to be quite honest with you, I was like, eh, that might be a little long considering, well, most of our other messages had only been, our series had only been a number of weeks. And so uh, it wasn't that I thought that maybe the topic was off or that the content wouldn't be good. It was just simply that I know the fickleness of my own attention span, and so I thought, are we going to be able to captivate uh, the attention of the church for six months? And um, I'm so glad that I could not have been more wrong. Uh, This series uh, has been incredible. Um, Raise your hand if you've learned something. I know I've learned a ton, things that uh, I didn't even, hadn't even crossed my mind before. And so it's been informative and encouraging, and as has been kind of stated a number of times so far, uh, this is a a foundational, a bedrock type of series that we're coming through uh, for this church. And so, um, as has been said a number of times, if you've missed any of the messages, go back and listen to them. If you've heard them all, go back and listen to them. They are packed full of information and it's been incredible. And I would be remiss if I didn't specifically call out two gentlemen, uh, my dear friends, Phil and Isaac. Um, We have a teaching team, as you all know, and we have a teaching director, um, and we wouldn't be where we're at today without the leadership of Heather. But in this particular situation, in this particular, particular series, my dear friends, Isaac and Phil, have really championed this message series. So if you have enjoyed this, if you've learned something, um, much of it is due to them encouraging us as a teaching team, um, pouring into us, uh, giving us resources, um, and it's just been an incredible series. So thank you. We love you guys, and um, we probably wouldn't be here without you. 
All right, so before we get started, let's pray. Father, Lord, um, Lord, we thank you for this church body, and we thank you for the people that are here, the people that you've put in our midst, Lord, the body that you have called us to shepherd and to do life and community with. Lord, we just pray that today's word would be uh, all about you, your words, not mine, and we love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. All right, Revelation 20. So as Phil was sharing, Revelation 20 uh, in many ways is the culmination, not only of just Revelation, but all of Scripture. We are literally at the point where Satan is finally defeated. Amen. And so if you're taking notes, uh, I'm just going to call this uh, uh, message simply, We Win. So when Heather reached out to me, she's like, hey, uh, are you interested in taking Revelation 20? Again, full uh, transparency, it didn't immediately connect with me what Revelation 20 was. I had read Revelation before, but it had been a number of months before uh, or since I had preached last. And so I said, yeah, absolutely. And in my head, I was kind of thinking like, it's going to get close to Christmas by the time I'm preaching, and it'll probably be a lighthearted, easy topic to tackle. And then I flipped to Revelation 20 and said, oh, thank you, Heather. I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to preach on uh, Revelation 20. And so if you're in Revelation 20, um, before we get into it, it, you can really kind of break it down into three sections. The first section being the thousand years. Section two, the defeat of Satan. And then section three, the final judgment. So here we go. We're at the end. The end's in sight, right? We've got a couple more weeks left. Are we? Yeah? All right. All right. If I was a normal preacher, I'd probably make some joke about uh, being bottom of the ninth or something like that, but I don't watch much hockey, so <laughs> the um... Revelation 20. Let's dive in. Then I saw an angel coming from heaven with keys to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. Let's pause there for a moment. So what do we know about Revelation? What have we seen time and time again? This, this idea of imagery, right? That it's, it's full of imagery. And in some situations, what is being spelled out is literal, but 99% of the time we're dealing with imagery. And in this particular case, we see two pieces of imagery that are very, very important. We see the keys, and we see a heavy chain. Now, we simply need to go back to Revelation 1, kind of like where we first started in this series, and we see the first imagery around the keys. Remember, Revelation 1.17, Jesus declares, I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I live forever. I hold the keys of both death and Hades. So the keys are imagery around his authority. The only authority that, that can be bestowed to Jesus, because that he is the only one that has it, is illustrated with these keys. Secondly, we see this big heavy chain. I was going to bring you, for those that haven't heard me preach, I often have like some sort of prop or whatever, and I was going to go with the big heavy chain. Um, unfortunately, they're quite expensive, believe it or not. <laughs> So you'll just have to imagine a big, heavy chain. Now, big, heavy chain, right? We're not talking about like the chain that maybe you have in the bed of your truck. We're talking like boat anchor 
chain, right? Like a big, heavy chain. And again, it's imagery. Put it this way. If we're out at the farm and my wife is looking out the window and she sees me come out of the barn with a big, heavy chain, she might not know exactly what's about to happen, but she's going to be fairly confident that something significant is about to happen. You don't get a big, heavy chain to go to a picnic or any number of smaller things. You get a big, heavy chain when something impactful is about to happen. And so we see this imagery of Christ with the keys in one hand and the big, heavy chain in the other. I would argue that the big, heavy chain in a number of different ways could be interpreted, interpreted as the sin that is removed from us and that he's going to wrap around the neck of Satan as we see in the coming chapters. Okay, next image. Moving on in uh, chapter 20. He sees the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in the chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterwards, he must be released for a little while. All right, the thousand years, the first section. Now, if you've studied Revelation for any period of time, this has certainly been one of the passages that you've probably spent some time on. I want to say this. There are only six references to Christ only reigning for a thousand years in all of Scripture. And they are contained in verses 2 through 7. So we should be clear about that. Just so we can kind of go through them real quickly. Verse 2, Satan is bound for the thousand years. Verse 3, Satan is released again. Verse 4, thrones are being set up and occupied by those with Christ over the thousand years. Verse 5, the thousand years were completed. The dead are brought back to life. Verse 6, those who were part of the first resurrection reign with Christ for the thousand years. And then verse 7, Satan is released from prison after the thousand years for a short period. And so let's look at it this way. There are many people much smarter than myself or all of the collective team here at Church 214 who are sincere, well-educated, versed in theology, have a desire to understand this text with all that they can, and it's been studied for hundreds and thousands of years. What does this text mean? And the point that we're at right now is that there's essentially three views or three interpretations of what this can mean. And so the first is, we're going to go through them somewhat briefly, the first is premillennialism. We can throw that up there. Now, in sixth grade, uh, I, like many of you, took the Iowa basic skills test, and I was told that my reading comprehension was suboptimal. <laughs> so I made pictures. And so we can go through it together. Now, premillennialism is, so millennia is a thousand right, for those that don't know. And so premillennialism, and you'll see that these three different viewpoints, there are similarities in, in all of them, and most of them are very, very similar with a few exceptions. So premillennialism 
creation, the first coming, the church age. This is us right now. Then the second coming, Satan is bound. Then the thousand years, Satan is released, a short period of time, and then the new creation. And so premillennialists believe a couple key points. The first is that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. Exactly. Not 999, not 1001. They believe that it is a literal thousand years and that that thousand years starts at the second coming of Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. If you have studied or you have been raised to believe that this is the bucket that we're to, to go with, raise your hand. I'm going to raise my, no, no shame. Like, raise your hand if this is how you were taught or you're brought up. This is, this is what I was brought up with, that the thousand years would start after Jesus returns. Okay. Viewpoint interpretation two, the amillennialism. Okay. Again, very, very similar right? First coming. But the difference with this one is, is that amillennialists believe that Satan was bound at the resurrection of Christ. When he ascends into heaven, that's when the thousand years begins. Similarly to the, the premillennialists, new creation at the end, the church age in the middle. And, um, you know, this would be uh, viewed as the thousand years is more literal that it may not be an actual 1,365 days, but it is metaphorical or it's imagery, right? So if this is your view, or maybe you kind of fall into this bucket, raise your hand. Again, no shame. Like, it's, it's totally okay. All right, I'll be honest with you. This is kind of where I've gone recently. This is kind of more my interpretation. And we'll get to the fact that it's okay that you might flow between the different interpretations. Then the third, third view, postmillennialism. So the idea being that there's the first coming, the church age, Satan's bound, the thousand years, the second coming, and the new creation. Now, primarily, postmillennialism believes that the thousand years maybe, be a, maybe might be a thousand years, or maybe it might not be. We're not really sure, and they're okay with that. Um, and so this is kind of the idea around postmillennialism. Any postmillennialists here? Yeah? All right, Daryl, my man Daryl. All right, so here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is, is that no matter which one you raise your hand for, you're probably right. And the bad news is, you're probably a little wrong. See, the reality is, is that no matter how much we dive into this, there are some mysteries that we're just not meant to know this side of eternity. And so we can pursue this with the purest of hearts. We can educate ourselves as best as we can, but there's some things that we just can't know for certain. But there are definitely some things we can know for certain. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. There are three points that we absolutely can agree upon. And there are three things that we should agree upon. So, are we ready to hear some points we can agree upon? All right, point number one. In all three cases, just throw one of them up there, it doesn't matter which one. In all three cases, we win. 
right? No matter which one you adopt or which one you believe in, we win. The new creation prevails no matter which view of the thousand years you adopt. Okay, so that's good news. Point two, this future is not up for grabs, right? Jesus is in control. He knows what's going to happen. And rather, we know the time frame or the timeline that it's going to occur on. He's in control. And subsequently, point three, we are not. We don't get to decide when the thousand years is. We don't get to say, well, we know when it is. In fact, I would argue to you that if you have a conversation with anyone this starts to tell you they know exactly when the thousand years is or exactly when Christ will return, run, don't walk from the conversation. The text is very clear. Only the Father knows when he's returning. Say it again. Only the Father knows when he's coming. It's not up for us to decide. So, can we all agree on those three points? Those are three good points, right? Jesus wins, he's in control, and we're not. All right. Three things that we should agree upon, but are probably might step on some toes, and that's okay. It's okay to agree to disagree on some of these things when it comes to non-clinch fist issues, right? These are non-salvation issues. These are not, if you believe one and I believe the other, you're going to hell and I'm not. That's the way it would work out, by the way. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just, just a little humor. A little humor. It's okay. All right. The first thing that we should all agree upon is that the thousand years is imagery. Now, I know the premillennialists, this is going to probably step on some toes a little bit, and that's okay. But listen to me. Hear me out. What have we seen over and over and over again in Revelation? That numbers are what? Imagery. That's right. Over and over again. So, just so we're all on the same page, Revelation 5, Jesus is portrayed with seven eyes and seven horns. Do we believe that Jesus has seven eyes and seven horns? Imagery. Revelation 7, the 140,000 followers. Do we believe that there's only 140,000 followers? No, it's imagery. Listen, a thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. Three is the number of divine wholeness, and 10 is the number of completeness. So a thousand, might it be a thousand? It Maybe, as my wife says all the time. But... It could be 999. It could be, who knows how many years it could be. I, I, I think that we can all agree that it's likely imagery. So if it's not, I will readily admit that I'm wrong and we'll move on. Point two, Jesus, again, we throw up, throw up any of them. It doesn't matter. Point two, Jesus is the current king. We are not waiting for him to become king. Amen? Correct. 
He is the current reigning king of everything. He has all authority and all power. That authority and power does not come at a future date at his second return. We're not waiting around for Jesus to come so that he can take back the throne and reign again. That is a poor interpretation of any of these views. He is the current reigning king, and so therefore all authority and power is in his hands. And because of that, the third point is is that the church is not relegated to take our beatings from the world because we have no authority through him. Listen, we are the bride of Christ. We have the authority to call out the enemy. We have the authority to not be some passive organization to ask permission from culture on what we can and can't do. We have the authority to do everything that's in Scripture right now in Jesus' name. Correct? Amen. So we don't have to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and act like, let's wait for Jesus to return. I'm so nervous about what is about to happen. What's going on in the world? No. He is the king now as he was the king before, and he will be the king in the future. And because of that, we rest in the authority that he has given us. All right. Are we good on the thousand years? Nobody's left yet. Uh, He left, but... (laughs) I'm teasing. I'm teasing. All right. Section two, the defeat of Satan. I mean, come on. A title like that, the defeat of Satan? All right, I, it gets me excited. I mean, this is literally, this is literally the culmination of Scripture. The culmination of Scripture. This is everything. Everything that's happened up until this point is a story of our depravity, of us being lied to, our sin, how we don't have the ability to get to God, a Savior And a father that loves us so much that he sends his son for us. And then that savior kicking Satan in the teeth and saying no more. That is the culmination. And this is it. Revelation 20. So it begins with, when the thousand years has come to an end, Satan will be let out of prison and he will go and deceive the nations. Do we believe we're being deceived right now? Yeah. I'd say so. I would say that Satan doesn't even try to hide his deception any longer. He flaunts it in front of the church. He acts as if there's no repercussions for his lies. He's convincing our youth that they can be whatever sex they want. He's convincing families and mothers that they can kill their children. He's convincing marriages that it's okay when things get tough and you fall out of love to dissolve that covenant and move on to the next one. The lies go on and on and on. And listen, there is grace for all of those things, 100%. But he is deceiving the nations. The nations, who's the nations? The nations are you and me. The nations are you and me. And he's going out and he's deceiving us. He's lying to us. He is a liar. That is, can you just pause for a second? 
Can you imagine that your number one description of somebody you know is that they're a liar? Can you imagine? If your character was so poor that you were literally known as the author of lies? And the way that I would argue that he is lying to the church, our church included at times, God forgive us, is through a spirit of offense and disunity. Listen, unity in the body of Christ is the grief of hell. And division in the church is the glee of hell. As I was preparing this message, I knew, and Heather can attest to this, my wife can attest to this, this has been something that's been on my heart for six months, seven months, something like that. This idea of offense, especially within the context of the church. Listen, if somebody's offended and they don't know Jesus, so be it. But if you're a Christ follower and you're operating under a spirit of offense, well, Jesus, let these be your words, not mine. Listen, I want to differentiate something real quick. There is a difference between hurt and offense, okay? Does everybody understand conceptually the difference? Okay, hurt is a real thing. And if you have been in any sort of meaningful relationship for any period of time, chances are you've probably been hurt before. I remember many years ago, I was hurt very badly in a relationship. And as the story was coming out, I remember this voice in my head. As quickly as the words were coming out, I heard this voice in my head. Don't believe any lies. Don't believe any lies. Don't believe any lies. And at the moment when it was happening, I didn't really understand where it was coming from or why I was like, why, why do I just keep hearing, don't believe any lies, don't believe any lies, don't believe any lies? Because our enemy is a liar. And he will take hurt, which can happen, and he will turn that into an offense, and he will turn that into division through lies. The other thing I want to be real quick and brief on is, is that if you have what you might describe as church hurt, you don't have church hurt. Listen, the body of Christ is the bride of our Savior. If you have church hurt, and trust me, just trust me when I tell you this, I've had what you might describe as church hurt, but it's not church hurt. You have people hurt. You had a relationship with somebody, maybe in a position of authority within a church, 
Maybe not. But they hurt you. And it's okay to be hurt. It is not okay to be offended. So, many of us know as Christ followers that we should have a Matthew 18 approach, right? If you have an offense with your brother or sister, go to them. Before you even come to church, go to them. Have that conversation. It's okay to go have candid, direct conversations with people. Listen, the church has been tiptoeing around this stuff for too long. Too many of us take our ball and go home when we have the least amount of conflict instead of working through it with the brothers and sisters in the body. So what does it look like practically for us as a church body to work through hurt? Well, I'll give you some suggestions. Take them or leave them. They're rooted in Scripture, so I'd take them if I were you. (laughs) But they're quite simple. This stuff is not complicated. We make it way too complicated. And listen, I know... I know human tendencies I, because I am one. We get hurt. And what do we do when we get hurt? We go to other people who will be sympathetic to our hurt and our offense, don't we? Man, I've done it. I know you've done it. You go and you find somebody that's going to be sympathetic to your offense. And... Rather you cognitively understand what you're doing or not, this is what will happen. I promise you, if you go to somebody who's sympathetic to your offense, they're going to wrap their arm around you and they're going to say, walk this way, let's be offended together. And that offense will grow into division. That happens every time. Like, you don't believe me? I'll give you an example. Offense loves defined offense. They're like magnets. As church leaders, been doing this for a little while, you can see offense from a mile away. Body posture changes, interactions change, people taking offense on behalf of other people. Oh, really? Offense is heavy enough. You're going to take it up for somebody else? I wouldn't. So how do we deal with offense in the church? Okay, here's a few practical ways. As the enemy's lying to you, you've been hurt. Let's say it's a legitimate hurt. Okay? Because, and I I preface that, because there are illegitimate hurts. There are things that you believe you've been hurt by. You've not really been hurt by them. Here, I'll give you an example. Anybody that's been married, when you're offended with your spouse, which never happens here because we have a bunch of wonderful marriages, (laughs) you're annoyed with your spouse. Man, anything that they do annoys you, doesn't it? They can be sleeping wrong, chewing, (laughs) chewing wrong, looking at you wrong. Laughing. They can literally be having fun wrong. Right? 
It's true. He's just like, oh, it annoys me that you're having fun right now because I'm annoyed at you. I'm offended at you. Likewise, though, when you're not offended with each other, when you're, maybe you're in like that new married couple phase, or maybe you just have a really good marriage, and nothing that they do can offend you. They can blow their nose in their hands and then go make you a sandwich. You're like, this is the best sandwich I've ever had, babe. <laughs> nothing that they do can offend you. Be that person. Be that person. Be unoffendable. Do you know how freeing it is to be unoffendable? To just let it... Right? But let's say you, let's say you are hurt. Because again, there are real hurts. And some of them, I'm not trying to make light of it. Some of them are very painful. Some of them are rooted in deep personal relationships that include things like betrayal. And that is a very difficult thing to get over. So here's my encouragement to you. The first question you need to ask yourself is, does the offense align with the character of the person? If you've been friends with somebody for years and years and years, and all of a sudden something happens that's totally out of character with how you would characterize the friendship, how you would characterize that person's moral character, their integrity, I would urge you to pause and ask the question, does this align with their character? Okay? Two, after you've cleared that hurdle, have you prayed earnestly about it? Now let's dive into this for a moment. This does not mean having conversations with God, telling them or telling him how wrong this person is. That's not prayer in earnest. None of us are perfect. Prayer in earnest is on your face before God saying, help me understand. Do I have a blind spot in my life? Is there something that maybe I'm not aware of in this other person's life that, I, that might change how I perceive the offense if I knew about it? Is there grace for that person? Is there selfishness in your own heart? Have you earnestly prayed about it? And this I know to be 1,000% true. If you in earnest ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what is in your heart, he will do it 100% of the time. He is incapable of not revealing that to you. Whether or not you heed it is a different question. Third, go humbly to the person. Listen, we all live complicated lives with lots of stressors, lots of situations that maybe even our closest friends don't know the details of. Going humbly to that person instead of coming with a list of accusations is a surefire way to actually have resolution with the person. Hey friend, 
you said something that really hurt me the other day. Hey, friend, I feel like we've drifted apart. Hey, friend, whatever it is, the list can go on and on. Come to the person with a desire for understanding, not a desire to cause more division in the relationship. And fourth, go with a singular focus for unity. Now, unity is not the same as agreement. If somebody's hurt you legitimately, there may not be agreement, but there can be unity within the body. So, offense is a heavy, heavy thing. And this may step on some toes, but offense is a weak emotion. You say, well, Kip, that's kind of harsh. Well, offense, let's back up. Walking in offense, having offense in your heart, listening to the lies of your enemy as it says he goes out and deceives the nations, having offense in your heart is sin. Yes? So you're literally sinning because of somebody else's actions. And worse yet, which takes us into the last part of Revelation chapter 20, you're walking with unforgiveness. Listen, I'm not trying to make light of it. I am trying to point out that there are some things within the church body, man, you just got to let it go. We're all adults here, most of us. Physically, we're adults. Emotionally, some of us have some growing up to do. We need to get to a point in the church body where we are unoffendable. That we immediately believe the best in the person, not the worst. That we immediately have a desire for unity and clarity about the relationship instead of going and finding that one person or that group of people that are going to encourage us in our offense and breed division in the relationship. And so going in to the final judgment in Revelation 20, my encouragement to all of us, myself included, is that don't walk around with offense. Some of us may need to leave this very service and make a phone call, ask for a meeting, have a conversation. But before you do, make sure that your heart is in the right place. Make sure that you desire unity, that you desire understanding, and that you want connection with the person. Okay? All right. Moving on. The final judgment. The final judgment. And I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what 
they had done as recorded in the books. Offense leads to unforgiveness. And I can tell you that I would not want to be in this place right here that's just described with a heart of unforgiveness. Offense is such a terrible thing within the church. We see time and time again throughout Scripture this imagery of the battle that we're in. We're in a battle. You all know that, right? Your enemy hates you. He hates everything about you. He wants to lie to you. He wants to take you out. He wants to take your brothers and your sisters out. And if we're the body of Christ and we are called to be at battle with our enemy in Jesus' name and through his authority only, but yet we're dealing with this offense that our enemy has sown within the the church. So how do we deal with it? Well, I saw this interview a while back ago and I thought it was so pertinent to this imagery. Back when SEAL Team 6 kind of became famous for killing Osama bin Laden. Shortly after, some of the team members started to take interviews about what had transpired. And they were talking about how they prepare for battle and how they work as a team, how they know each other's personalities and movements so well that they literally don't even have to talk to each other. They can touch each other or look each other in the eye and know what one guy or the other guy is going to do. And they literally trust their teammates with their physical life. Implicitly, there's this understanding. They're going to battle. Their lives are in each other's hands. They've got an enemy that they have to go take out. And they started talking about not only what they did to prepare in terms of their operational things, but what they did, and they said this, was every bit if not more important than the operational readiness. And that was the relational readiness. They would meet as a team, if they were married, spouses included, before they would deploy. And if there was any offense within the team, they would sort it out. They would have a face-to-face conversation. They would get it all out on the table and resolve it before they went to battle. Because they knew that there was no room for offense going into a battle like that. And the same is true for us. Only the stakes are infinitely higher. There is no room for offense in the church. Listen, we have a common enemy. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have an enemy that hates your brother and sister as much as he hates you. And we need to get past 
offense and division in the church and become healthy in our ability to resolve these things. I want you to do me a favor. Stand up. Now, I know a lot of you are standing next to probably your spouse or your children, and that's fine. But I want you to turn to your left. And we're going to embrace awkward for just a moment. I want you to, whoever's to your left, I want you to look at them right in the eyes. Well, some of you are going to have to turn the other way. I also didn't do very well on operational excellence in <laughs> Iowa basic skills. Look them in the eyes. I mean, really look them in the eyes. Hold that stare for a second. Do you see a brother? Do you see a sister in Christ? Do you see somebody that's just like you doing their absolute best? to follow Jesus and desires unity and is sometimes going to screw up and wants the same grace and mercy that you would expect if you screwed up? Listen, church, this is the body. You can, you can take your, <laughs> you can look away. Stay, stay standing, stay standing. Listen, I really, really sincerely hope that this came across the way that it is in my heart. There's too much at stake, you guys. There's too much at stake to let the enemy use such a weak and petty weapon in the church. I'm not immune to this. I, this week, I get to go have four conversations with people that I found out two weeks ago have had an offense against me for over 20 years. So I've spent the past week praying to get my heart right. Because I love them so much, I don't want them to carry offense in their heart. I don't want them to sin and be in sin, holding what I, I personally believe is a, is a petty excuse for offense, but I'm going to go into the conversation as humbly as I possibly can to understand. Church, we have to get to a point of unity so that there is no room for the enemy to sow division in the church, the global church, this church, these relationships. As we go into this last song and as we close, I just pray, I'll be praying that we 
find a unity in this church that we are known for in this community. By our fruits, we will be known. Let us find that unity together. Let us serve Jesus together. And let us put our foot, our heel on the throat of that enemy. In Jesus' name, we don't have to take it anymore. Don't tread on us. We are the bride of Christ. Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that you loved us first. If anyone, if anyone could be offended, it's you. For our sin, for our blatant disregard for your instructions over our life, for our flippantness in your holiness. Yet you, perfect and blameless, went to the cross for us. You took our sins. You took the mocking, the beatings, the name-calling, the spitting for us. And because of that, we lay down any right to be offended at a brother or sister at your feet. You paid the price. You paid the price. We did. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you modeled forgiveness. You modeled grace. Not all your conversations were fun. In fact, many of your conversations were direct, but they were loving and full of truth. And so Lord, I just pray that we would go out of this place today with a renewed commitment to unity, a renewed commitment to avoiding the lies of our enemy, a renewed commitment to avoid division and offense in our hearts, and a renewed commitment to forgive each other the way that you've forgiven us. Jesus, we love you. All that we do is still not enough. But we love you. And because you love us, somehow impossibly that became sufficient. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the people in it. And thank you that you have forgiven us. In your name we pray. Amen.